in a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy and Linus are sitting in front of the television set, and Lucy says to Linus in a way that only Lucy can, go get me a glass of water. Linus looks surprised, and he says to his big sister, why should I do anything for you? You never do anything for me. To which Lucy matter-of-factly promises, on your 75th birthday, I'll bake you a cake. The next frame shows Linus smiling and walking to the kitchen to get a glass of water for his big sister. In the final frame of the comic, he says, life is more pleasant when you have something to look forward to. Some people think that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. For a Christian to believe in Jesus, it's this vague, naive, foolish hope that one day, way, way, way off in the future, God will do something good for you. That's the hope of the Christian in the minds of many. But that is not Christian hope. Christian hope, our hope in the future, and it might be for some of us well past our 75th birthday. For some of us, it might be well short of it. But our hope in the future for what God will do in our lives, the day when we will see Him face to face, that final and future hope is firmly rooted in what God has already done in the past. Our hope is rooted in not, not merely the activity of God, but in a person, God the Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you, if you will, if you're not already there, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. Just to set the context of the passage that we opened with the service with, Matthew 12, uh, beginning in verse 15, if you were with us last week, you remember that the Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus. You remember that Jesus really rubbed them the wrong way as He challenged their beliefs about the Sabbath. He and His disciples grabbing heads of grain on the Sabbath and then intentionally kind of in their faces healing someone on the Sabbath, violating their rules about the Sabbath and what you could or couldn't do on that day. And while the elite Jews are rejecting Jesus, our passage this morning shows us how the Gentiles are putting their hope in Him. I want to read the passage for us one more time. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, that's referring to the fact that the Pharisees are trying to kill Him in verse 14. He withdrew from there, and many followed Him. And He healed them all and ordered them not to make Him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope." Notice at the end of our passage this morning, Matthew, quoting Isaiah, says, because of who Jesus is and because of what He has done, the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are putting their hope in Him. So, springboarding off of that phrase at the end of our text this morning, I want to show you with God's help eight reasons why Gentiles and everybody else should put their hope in Jesus. Eight reasons. Say eight? Well, I could give you a lot more, but I don't think you want to be here as long as I might want to talk. So we'll limit it to eight. Reason number one, why you, dear friend, should put your hope in Jesus. Why you, Christian, should keep your hope in Jesus. And when, it's, when you're tempted to, to get out of alignment and put your hope in something else, something smaller than Jesus, why you should realign it to the person of Christ. Reason number one, because Jesus accomplishes the mission of God. Jesus accomplishes the mission of God. Look with me at verse 15. Jesus, aware of what the Pharisees were trying to do, withdrew from there. Now, why did Jesus withdraw from what the Pharisees were doing? Why does the text, it seems to indicate that the Pharisees are planning to kill Jesus and Jesus kind of backs away. What's the reason for that? Is Jesus afraid? Is Jesus shying away from controversy, from difficulty? I'm going to suggest that's absolutely not what Jesus is doing here. If Jesus was afraid of the Pharisees, He wouldn't have responded to them the way that He did last week. You remember last week, twice or three times, He asked them, haven't you read the Scriptures? Now, that'd be kind of like, uh, you know, saying to your doctor, don't you know the way the body works? You don't kind of approach someone, an expert in their field, and ask them if they know their field, unless you really aren't worried about what they think about you. Jesus, He's not afraid of the Pharisees. Just read how He responds to the physical torture later in the Gospel of Matthew. Look at the way that Jesus responds to false accusation, to crown of thorns being pushed onto His head, to lashes flogging by Roman officials, to crucifixion. Look at the way He responds to incredible, excruciating physical pain, and you can see that Jesus isn't afraid. That's not why He withdraws. So why then does Jesus withdraw? Because He had a mission from God that must be accomplished. What was the mission? Well, it's recorded for us all throughout the Scriptures. One key place is John 3.16. You know the text. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God has a mission to redeem sinful, broken people. And in order to do so, He sends His Son. 
To do what? Matthew chapter 20 tells us, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Why is Jesus here? Why is Jesus there in our text? He came here to die. That's His mission. That is His first and foremost primary mission. It is to die as a substitute for His people. That's why He's here. As we get ready for Christmas, young people, little kiddos in the room, why is Christmas so important? It's not simply the story of a little baby, kind of a rags-to-riches story, this little baby born in a manger. It's the story of a Savior who was born to die. It's why He came. Beginning next week, Lord willing, we'll spend the next few weeks breaking from Matthew and just examining that together as a church family, that Jesus was born to die. That's why He came. That was His mission. So then why is Jesus withdrawing when people are trying to kill Him? Because Jesus is going to die in His own time and in His own way. Jesus will say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Jesus is not going to be killed by a mob on the side of the road. He is going to die hung on a tree. And so Jesus withdraws until the time comes for Him to die. We also see Jesus' focus on His mission in the second half of verse 15. The text says, Many followed Him, and He healed them all, and ordered them, verse 16, not to make Him known. We see this quite often in the Gospels where Jesus will heal somebody and he'll say, don't tell anybody about this. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus heal a person and say, don't say anything? Can you imagine that? Imagine you were born blind and for the first time you can see and the guy that helps you to see says to you, don't talk about it. Don't tell anybody. I mean, that's almost an impossible command, and yet Jesus does that. Why? Because He's focused on the mission. Because Jesus' primary mission is not merely to heal people. Jesus has compassion. He heals people. We see it all throughout the Gospels, including in our text this morning. But that's not His main mission. His mission is primary mission is not merely to make people feel better on their way to hell. Jesus' desire is to save people so that they don't have to go to hell. That's what He's here for. And He knows as word about His miracle working power spreads, it becomes more difficult for Him to actually do His mission. And people begin to be interested in Jesus the way you might be interested in some sort of an illusionist or a magician. Man, he does fancy tricks. But Jesus isn't here to do fancy tricks. He's here to redeem his people. He's here to die for you. So hope in Jesus because he accomplishes the mission of God. Let me just pause for a moment here before we move on and and just encourage you, dear Christian, struggling Christian, Jesus has bigger plans than your current sense of well-being. 
some of us are struggling. We're hurting. And, and it's not just the one thing. It's the thing piled on top of another thing, piled up on, on top of another thing, on top of another thing. And before you know it, you're so weighed down, you feel crushed. And you say, God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? What in the world is going on? Jesus has bigger plans than you, making you feel good right now. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about that. But his mission is bigger than that. So hope in Jesus because he accomplishes the mission of God. But you should also, also hope in Him, number two, because He fulfills the Word of God. Jesus fulfills the Word of God. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Now, what follows in verses 18 to 21 is Matthew's translation of Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. You can jot it down if you're a note taker. That's the passage that Matthew is translating and quoting. And this is the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the entire Gospels. All four Gospels, none of them have a longer Old Testament quote than right here. This is one of hundreds of different prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus. Just, just think about it for a second. He, he was born in Bethlehem, prophesied by Micah. He was preceded by a messenger, prophesied by Malachi. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey, prophesied by Zechariah. He was betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He was silent before his accusers. He was stricken by a rod. He was mocked by his accusers. He hung on a tree. He was pierced by his enemies. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was resurrected on the third day. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the snake. He's the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's the descendant of Judah who will rule like a lion forever. He's the Passover lamb whose blood rescues us from our sin. He's the high priest who intercedes for his people and he's the sacrifice. He's the prophet greater than Moses. He's the son of David whose kingdom will be established forever. He's the author of a new covenant where the law of God will be written on the hearts of God's people. Jesus fulfills the word of God. There's no wonder then that Jesus once said to the Pharisees, in one of my favorite passages of Scripture, John chapter 5, verse 39. And remember, the Pharisees, these are the guys whose job is to study the Bible. And Jesus says this to them. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. <laughs> Jesus is saying, you guys are spending your days and your nights and your jobs studying your scrolls, studying the Old Testament, but you've missed the point. Guess what? I'm the point. Or later, after His resurrection, to his disciples, Jesus says in Luke 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Just think about the audacity of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the law of Moses, 
The Psalms of David and the other psalmists and the prophets were all talking about Him. Imagine that somebody came to you and said, you know what, now that I'm here, everything that was written about me in the Constitution of the United States of America has been fulfilled. That would be ridiculous. And Jesus is saying something even more ridiculous than, than that, unless He is God Himself, which of course He is. So hope in Jesus because He fulfills the Word of God. Let me just challenge you, followers of Jesus, as we read the Bible, let's read the Bible in light of Christ. We look at the Scriptures with, with Jesus' glasses on. We look at the Scriptures on this side of the cross and we see in the Scriptures beginning in Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we see Christ. Let me ask you, as you read the Bible, as you study God's Word, is your heart, is your goal to see Jesus and grow deeper in love with Jesus or merely to learn information? Do you want Jesus? Scriptures fulfill, they're fulfilled by Jesus. Hope in Jesus because He fulfills the Word of God. Number three, you should hope in Him because He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. In his book, The Da Vinci Code, uh, Dan Brown writes that Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted upon by the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. His point is that nobody really believed that Jesus was the Son of God until Constantine, about 300 years after Jesus lived, ministered, and died. Now, it is true, it is true that at the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, at the Council of Nicaea, a group of pastors gathered to condemn a heretic named Arius, and they condemned him for teaching that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. By the way, if you want some fun, interesting reading for this afternoon, just Google how Arius died. I promise you, you will not regret it. Don't do it now. I don't want you bursting out laughing in the middle of my sermon for no reason, but Google it later. It's a great story. If you can't find it, I'll tell you later. Council of Nicaea, 325. That was not in my notes. That was totally free. Council of Nicaea, 325. Listen, these pastors didn't decide, let's believe that Jesus is God. No, they simply said, we're rejecting as heresy anyone that teaches Jesus isn't God. It's obvious in the Scriptures that in the New Testament is clear Jesus is God. Absolutely clear. One place is right here in our text. Look at verse 18. Quoting Isaiah 42, the text reads, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Now, God the Father is speaking in Isaiah, and He's talking to Isaiah the prophet about somebody He calls His servant. Now, if, you, uh, if you were to talk to a Jewish rabbi today, he would tell you that the servant in the book of Isaiah is the nation of Israel. 
But if you read Isaiah carefully, and especially move on to the later chapters of Isaiah, it's really clear that the servant is not merely a nation, but a person who represents an entire people. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ. The servant, the servant in Isaiah is Jesus If the language here in verse 18 sounds familiar to you, it's because it's hinted at in two other places in Matthew's gospel. The first was right after Jesus was baptized. Remember the story, right? Jesus goes into the water. He's baptized by John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's alluding to Isaiah 42. The second place in Matthew's gospel is in Matthew chapter 17. It's a great story. Jesus goes up to a mountain with Peter, James, and John. So he doesn't take the whole gang. He takes the three kind of key disciples. They go up on the mountain, and on the mountain, they see Jesus transfigured, which simply means that they see him in his glory. Just imagine that. Jesus Live, you know, you look at all the artwork of Jesus, old artwork from medieval, medieval times and whatnot. Jesus always has a, a halo or something. He always has this kind of bright glow about him. So it's obvious if you see a crowd of people, oh, Jesus, he's the glowing guy over there, right? Well, that's not how it was. Jesus was a normal looking dude. He just, I mean, you wouldn't have been able to pick him up out of a lineup. He was a normal-looking guy. He had nothing fancy about him. He didn't have a halo. He didn't sparkle. He didn't glow. He was a normal-looking guy. But on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, they see him in his glory. They see him the way you and I will one day see him. And by the way, when you see Jesus like that, after you are made new in the new heavens and the new earth, you will never, ever want to sin again. Why would I ever want to do that when I have this? Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus in His glory. We don't know what that means exactly, but they see. And in addition, as if that wasn't enough, They see Jesus, and alongside him are Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah, but somehow they know. It's Moses over here, Elijah over here, Jesus is in the middle, and the three of them are talking. I mean, how incredible would that be? Now, Peter, who's perfect for putting his foot in his mouth in any situation... He says in Matthew 17, he kind of sees the three of them, Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and he thinks, I got an idea. Like nobody wanted Peter to say anything, but Peter just has to talk. This is some of you. That's okay. We still love you. He just has to talk, has to say something. And he says, I know what I'll say. Let's build tents. Let's build a tent, a tent for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And you can see James and John over there like, nobody asked for a tent, Peter. What are you talking about? Why do we need tents? But Peter says, let's build tents. He's got to say something. He speaks, and all of a sudden, a voice from heaven, a thundering voice from heaven says, while Peter is still speaking, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, don't get too impressed about Moses and Elijah. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. So that language, this is my beloved son, demonstrates to us Jesus is not merely 
a good teacher. He is not merely a good person. He is God. He did not become God. He has existed for eternity past as the second person of the Trinity, God. He was there at the creation of the universe. He is God. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me plead with you for just a moment. Worship Jesus. Would you today repent and believe in Jesus? Would you now confess your arrogance in denying the truth about Jesus and say, you know, I I may not understand it all. I don't know exactly how it all works, but I believe. Would you cry out to Him in faith today? Could it be, dear friend, that the very reason you are here today is to be reminded yet again that Jesus is God? And one day He will return, not as a lowly babe in a manger, but as a glorious judge. And at that day, it will be too late. So would you cry out to Him today? Hope in Jesus because He is the Son of God. You should also hope in Him, number four, because He has the Spirit of God. Look at verse 18 again. God the Father says about God the Son, I will put my Spirit upon Him. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. We believe that God exists eternally in three persons. One God, three persons. Each one co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. The Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. And the Spirit is also a person. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a person. The Bible talks to us about not grieving the Holy Spirit. He's a person. Person with, we could say, feelings and emotion. He is the third person of the Trinity. And the Spirit in our text this morning is the means by which Jesus does His earthly ministry. Jesus is truly God. He has all the power, all the authority of God. But He's also truly man. He has all the limitations and all the frailties and all the weaknesses of humanity. So how does Jesus faithfully fulfill all the miracle working, all of the obedience, all the temptation resisting activity that He does. How does He do it? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. Let me just show this to you in our text a little bit later. Go to Matthew 12, verse 28. We'll see this in a few weeks. Jesus is in another debate with the Pharisees, and they're debating about the fact that Jesus cast out demons. And they say, you must do that with Satan's power. Maybe it's Satan that helps you cast out Satan. But Jesus says in verse 28 that it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. How does Jesus, how does Jesus perform miracles? By the Spirit of God. 
Isn't that interesting, Christian? That Jesus chooses to come to this earth and make himself dependent upon the Spirit. He does these things by the power of the Spirit. And if you're here as a follower of Jesus, hoping in Jesus is to enter into a relationship with the entire Godhead. You have a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Christianity is more than mere facts about God. It is knowing God as a person, knowing the Father who has adopted you, knowing the Son who's your big brother who died for you, knowing the Spirit who lives inside of you. So, hope in Jesus because He has the Spirit of God. Also hope in Him, number five, because He proclaims the justice of God. Jesus proclaims the justice of God. Everybody wants justice, don't they? People talk about justice a lot these days. Whether you're an Antifa protester shouting no justice, no peace, or a, a Capitol rioter protesting election results, or anybody else anywhere in between, you want justice. You do. You might not say that you do, but you do. Let somebody steal something from you or break something that's yours, and you'll want justice pretty quickly. Everybody wants justice. The problem is we can't agree on what justice means. Jesus doesn't have that problem. Look at the text again, verse 18, and He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What does, what does that mean? What does it mean to proclaim justice to the Gentiles? Here's the justice that Jesus proclaims. Number one, God is holy. God's holy. His law is perfect. He's righteous. He's just. His commandments are true and good. So Jesus doesn't come undoing the Old Testament. He doesn't abolish it. He says it's fulfilled. He doesn't do away with everything that's been revealed. God is holy. The second part of this justice that Jesus proclaims is that we are not. We're sinful. We have broken God's law, and that's unjust. Now, I think most of us, if we're honest, you think about breaking God's law, you might think about it the way I think about breaking the speed limit. Uh, I need the, the chief just to plug his ears for a few minutes. When I break the speed limit... Very rarely. I'm not too offended by it. Because when you drive 36 and a 35, you really haven't hurt anybody's feelings. You, you, sure, you violated a standard, but you haven't broken a relationship. I have yet to meet, and maybe I will after the service if the chief comes and talks to me, but I've yet to meet somebody that is mortally offended by a broken relationship when the speed limit has been violated. And by the way, it should work both ways. If you get offended if someone goes 36 and a 35, you should be very offended at the people that go 34. Just say. We think of breaking God's law kind of like that, don't we? I mean, sure, I violated the standard, but it's... 
I mean, it's the standard. It's no, you know, nobody's going to do it perfectly. That's not the way it is to break the law of God. Breaking the law of God actually severs a relationship. It's a personal offense. It's more like breaking a law like not stealing or not murdering. When you break a law like that, you have severed a relationship. You've harmed someone. That's what it's like to break the law of God. Now, here's the problem. When you break the law of God, you are breaking a relationship. You are harming, we could say, a relationship with the most important person in the universe. Or you might say to yourself, well, if I steal a candy bar from Food Lion, it's not a confession, never done it. If I steal a candy bar from Food Lion, they've got thousands of those things. No big deal. But when you disobey God, you have broken a relationship with the God who speaks and galaxies appear. Now, that's the second part of the justice that Jesus proclaims. God is holy, we aren't. The third part of it is that justice demands punishment for law-breaking. It's true, isn't it? If you speed, you do deserve a ticket. And you can try as you might and go to the judge and say, well, you know, my, my heart was upright and honest as I sped, but you still broke the law and you deserve the consequences, right? And when you commit an offense against a person, there are consequences for the offense. That's well and good. But here's the deal. The greater the person that you sin against, the greater the consequence. Some of you have heard me say this before, but imagine that you were to, let's say, slap your mom. Don't do it. Young people, don't do it. But let's just say you did. What would happen? Well, depending upon your parents and their views on discipline, there would be some sort of consequences, I would imagine. Perhaps quite severe. But let's say you slap a teacher at school. All of a sudden, the consequences are different, aren't they? Because now what you might receive is, is not merely being grounded or a spanking or something like that, but now you might be expelled. Why? Because there's a different type of authority. What if you were to get pulled over for driving 36 and a 35, and you decide that the best way out of this might be to slap the police officer? Don't do it. Bad idea. I don't need, I don't need Stephen to tell me that one. If you do that, you're probably going to go to jail. Why? Greater authority. If you were happened, happening to be in the same area as the President of the United States, and you were invited to meet and greet with the President of the United States, and he sticks out his hand to shake yours, and you slap him in the face. Secret service would be on you like white on rice. And that just might be interpreted as an assassination attempt on the President of the United States. Why? Greater authority. Now, same offense, but different punishment because different authority. Think about God, again, as the most important person 
in the universe, with the greatest authority in the universe, and every sin is a cosmic slap to his face. Do you see what we deserve as lawbreakers? This is the justice that Jesus proclaims. Now, that's not entirely good news, is it? No, not really. If we say, well, God is holy, we're not, and we deserve to be punished for our law-breaking, that's pretty bad news. That's why we need number five, hope in Jesus, because He absorbs the wrath of God. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. Look with me at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Might seem kind of strange and out of place right there, but the word quarrel is a verb that's often used when someone is complaining of injustice. So the image here is that Jesus is going to receive injustice, but instead of quarreling, instead of crying out for someone to defend him, he's going to not cry aloud. No one's going to hear his voice crying out for help when he's being mistreated. When Jesus endures mistreatment, he doesn't fight back or cry out. Now, what mistreatment is Isaiah talking about? If you zoom a little bit later in Isaiah's prophecy to chapter 53, verse 7 tells us this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus endures suffering, and he does not quarrel or cry aloud in the streets. We can ask ourselves, who is it that's mistreating Jesus? Well, certainly the Pharisees did. They falsely accused Him, mocked Him, arrested Him. The, the Romans certainly mistreated Jesus. They flogged Him and divided His garments and mocked Him as He suffered. Herod, Pontius Pilate, certainly mistreated Jesus. The Jews mistreated Jesus as they cried out, crucify Him. Satan mistreats Jesus as, as he and his minions indwell Judas so that the crucifixion can happen according to their plan. But the real mistreatment that Jesus endures is not at the hands of any human being, but at the hands of the Father. Isaiah 53 again helps us here. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Christian, when Jesus died on the cross, he was absorbing, yes, the wrath of man, but more importantly, he was absorbing the wrath of God. Jesus is dying on the cross in all that punishment that you and I deserve. Jesus absorbs it in our place. This is why Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God doesn't punish twice for the same sin. 
If he already punished Jesus on the cross in your place, he's not going to punish you, Christian. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God in our place. So hope in him. Number seven, hope in Jesus because he protects the people of God. I love this. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Some of you drove down with Creek from Hampton, and you drove past all those reeds in that marshy area, these plants that are really kind of flimsy. They grew all around Israel. They weren't particularly valuable. There was millions of them. Now, sometimes a reed could be cut and shaped to serve as a measure or a flute or a pen, but a broken reed, a bruised reed, that would really be worthless. And then the smoldering wick, you know, candles in our day, we use them for scent. They smell good. But in that day, candles were used for light. You weren't doing it to make your house smell good. You didn't care about that. You wanted to be able to see. And Jesus here gives us an image of a reed that's bruised, not really worth a whole lot, and a candle, the wick is smoldering. It's almost out, and it's kind of annoying because it's smoking everywhere. But notice what the text says about Jesus. That bruised reed that feels like it's about to collapse under the weight, Jesus is not going to break it. That smoldering wick that seems in just a second it's going to go out, Jesus is not going to quench it. Once again, we see in our text the tender heart of Jesus. I'm, I'm a bit like a bull in a china shop, and I've broken my fair share of fine things in my life, but Jesus is not like that. I wonder if there's a Christian in this room that feels like a bruised reed. You feel like there's not a whole lot more you can handle. You feel like you're at the end of your rope. You feel broken beyond repair, beyond usefulness. You feel empty and tired and afraid. Jesus comes up to you, Christian, if you belong to him, and he tenderly cares for you, and he will not let you break. He will either decrease the suffering or increase your strength to bear it, but he will not let you break. And the smoldering wicks in this room that you feel like all you have left is a tiny little spark. That's all I've got. Jesus says, I will not let you be extinguished. You belong to me. I will not let you go out. Hope in Jesus because he protects the people of God. There's a lot more I could say there, but just moving on. Number eight, he keeps the promises of God. Have you ever wondered when that person you love is going to grow tired of you? You're going to have enough, and they're going to walk away. That relationship has all the strain it can handle, and it just ends because it just can't manage anymore. 
I wonder if there's anybody in this room that thinks, when's that going to happen with me and Jesus? When is he just going to have enough with me? Yeah, I'm a bruised reed. Yeah, I'm a smoldering wick. But what if I smolder too long? What if I'm too bruised? Would Jesus eventually give up on me? Look at the text. Verse 20, he will care for the bruised reed and the smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. Until the justice that's promised at the cross is completed. That long. Until he wipes away your final tear and you see him face to face. That's how long. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. How long will Jesus put up with you, Christian? Until the very end. And then he'll wipe away those tears and welcome you into his presence forever. Listen to the promise from John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus keeps the promises of God. Christian, you are not kept by you. You are kept by Him. So hope in Jesus. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, what are you hoping in? You're hoping in something. You're hoping in someone. You might think that you aren't. You might say, I'm not really, but you are. Is there anywhere better to place your hope than Jesus? Have you found a God better than this? Have you found news better than this? Hope in Jesus to the Christian, align your hope on Jesus. If you're like me, you drift and your hope leaks and you begin to put it in other things. This will happen at work. This relationship can get fixed. If this thing can happen, if I can get this job, if I can do this thing, then things will get better. You begin to put your hope in something smaller than Jesus. What we need to do is come to Jesus again today and say, let me fix my hope on you. And we do it together. We don't do this alone. Hoping in Jesus is a community project. It's something the people of God do together. So as we sing in just a moment, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to sing with all your heart and all your soul so that those around you might be encouraged to hope in Jesus. He alone is our hope. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for...